so we should we should leave that for the show as well okay well i mean we can we can start it now okay hello and welcome to so many bands oh my god i messed up the title of the show at the very beginning <laughs> it's a good start so many so many so many damn books hello welcome to so many damn books I am Christopher, and I am so excited because I have Dana Stevens joining me in the hyperspace version of the Damn Library. Dana Stevens has been Slate's film critic since 2006. She is also the co-host of the magazine's long-running weekly culture podcast, The Slate Culture Gab Fest, and has written for the New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and Book Forum. She lives with her family in New York, and you can follow her on Twitter at The High Sign. And... She has also written Cameraman, which she is here to talk about with me. Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. Dana, I'm so excited that you're here. I'm so happy to be here. It's, it's a pleasure. This is more fun than any podcast taping so far already. What with the drink and the candle burning. I feel like I'm at a <laughs> bar right now. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's the exact vibe that I want. Um, I'm so glad you brought up the cocktail. I had a very, very good time. Um, coming up with it for you. So I haven't even taken a sip yet because okay. I wanted to wait until you told me all about it. Okay, so you came up with this something themed yes. along with the book in some way. So this is um, this is a riff. I'm, I'm calling this drink the Pratfall and it is um, inspired by the many Pratfalls that Buster Keaton would take over uh, time. It was It's based off of the... Um, Brown Derby, which was a cocktail invented in 1930 at the um, Vendome Club uh, in, on Sunset Boulevard, and it was named after another restaurant uh, on the on the block, the Brown Derby. Um, and so it, that is a whiskey, a bourbon cocktail with grapefruit and honey. And I've added just a little bit of banana liqueur and salted honey shrub to the mix. Um, and so that is the that's the drink. That is a fantastic sounding group of ingredients. And it's perfectly themed because I'm sure the Brown Derby is a restaurant that Keaton must have gone to. It was a Hollywood hangout in exactly the years he was there. So that's exactly what I was thinking. Like there's there's a good chance that he actually drank one of these. Um, it's considered by the person who invented it a brunch cocktail because it is it is so light. Um, and, but I don't know if you'll agree. So let, I'm, I'm curious if you'll like it. All right. Cheers. cheers. Oh yeah, that's exactly my kind of drink, Christopher. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so I glad. I put in a could... word for bourbon, and I'm glad I did. I, I was also thinking about doing something Italian, like a spagliato, based on his amazing um, villa that he had created. But I thought this was something that he actually might have had. He, he definitely liked bourbon. I mean, when he was drinking, I think he liked brown liquors. You know. Yeah. There's actually a wonderful book since this is a book podcast about the about the Brown Derby. I don't know if you have it. It's kind of a coffee table history of the restaurant. But the, the text is really excellent, too. I can't remember who wrote it, but I think there's only one coffee table book with the Brown Derby in the title. So seek it out. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. The other thing that I wanted to make doubly sure of was that Buster Keaton had indeed done a banana slip fall. And he has. He has. Oh, yeah. He's done at least one I can think of. Yeah, he does one in The Cameraman. And I think there's one in The High Sign. Yep. Yeah, I, I, wasn't to make, I, I didn't want to make it. You know, the banana pratfall is a classic. And I just thought, yeah, that's that's what I, I wanted to put banana in the drink. So Yeah, I love it. And I love the name. So 
the next portion of the show, the next thing that happens is uh, what did you buy where we celebrate, uh, I guess, consumerism and talk about things that we purchased. <laughs> I can go first if you'd like to set the tone. Sure, I want to hear what a, what a what did you buy segment sounds like. Uh, no, I just um I this was just this book was just sent to um sent to me. I'm very very excited about it. It comes out in April or no, it becomes comes out at the end of March. So very soon. It's called The Cartographers by Peng Shepherd and it's about a ca cartographer whose father who's also a cartographer and who is her like personal hero. He's found dead. At, in his office at the New York Public Library. And she decides she has to search it out because there was a map on his desk when he died. That seems insignificant to her, but she's gonna go and search this out. And it's all the things I love. I love maps. I love things that have to do with the New York Public Library. Um, and so I, I'm very excited to, to dip into this book. Oh yeah, that's a really good premise. That is a really good suspense premise for a book. Totally. So what about you? Have you picked up anything? It doesn't have to be a book. It can be anything you like. I was trying to think of the last interesting thing I bought, something that wasn't just, you know, fuel to keep my life going. And I think it was that after the news of Monica Vitti's death the other day, I was just kind of, you know, browsing around online, looking at images of her. And somehow I found myself on eBay buying a poster of Monica Vitti from La Ventura which is an incredible poster because it's not, it wasn't the, you know, poster for the movie that was put out in, in theaters or anything. It's just a still. And, um, and it's of her face when she's looking in the mirror. Do you remember the scene in La Ventura? It's kind of a famous scene. Monica Vitti is looking in the mirror and it's a very serious, heavy movie in many ways. And she starts making all these faces and sort of cr crossing her eyes. And I posted, I think, a gif of some of this um, when we, people were exchanging links about her after she died. Anyway, there just happens to be a still image of Monica Vita ma making this very goofy face and kind of pushing up her nose like a pug nose. And, uh, and it was such an unusual image of her and not glamorous, but beautiful that I just had to have it. So I, I impulsively did, did the buy now button on eBay and I will soon own that poster and need to find a place to put it. That's great. Yeah, I feel like I am running out of wall space for any sort of poster unless i want to be one of those people that have like many many levels just kind of full like gallery wall type of thing. right yeah yeah i have a lot of keaton stuff up in my office right now which a lot of which will stay up but i mean i may possibly rotate some different things in like monica Vitti, you know to start looking at some different things yeah i suppose you're you you might feel you don't feel done with keaton you're not like ugh, keaton at the Not end of this the project. Least. Christopher, that's what's really strange about, I mean, it's, I think it is part of what has made this book catch on with people and, and what has made Keaton such a lasting figure in our culture is that you really don't get tired of him. I mean, I got tired of myself in the process of <laughs> writing the book, endlessly tired of myself and sick of my book and, you know, the thing that I had to go look at and try to make better, but I never got sick of the subject matter. And now yeah. that the book is out, all the, all the less so am I sick of it because I'm watching other people react to it and getting to screen the movies and it becomes a social event, you know, as a movie screening should be. And yeah, I feel like I'm as excited about him as ever. And in fact, there's a big biography of him, a, a real biography. We'll get into why my <laughs> book is not really a biography, but there's a big traditional doorstop, 800 page Keaton bio coming out in a week or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have it on pre-order. I can't wait to read it. I'm sure it'll take me a long time to read it because I'm around, running around doing my own book stuff. But, right. um, but I don't feel done with him at all, no. This isn't like an ant's bug life type of thing where you, you wish that you 
but two people didn't have the same idea for a Keaton book at the same time. You know, I knew pretty much during the whole course of writing this book, which took a little over five years, I'm saying six years, but that's sort of including, you know, the process of producing it, right, and putting it out. But like over the five and a half years or so that I was writing it, I knew that there was another Keaton biography or a Keaton biography in progress. And, and I was sort of relieved by that in a way, I, because I knew I mean, that the guy who's writing it, James Curtis, is a is a biographer. He's written a Mort Saul biography. He's done a lot of show business biographies. And I thought he's going to do it right. The stuff that I, I don't know how to do as a non-film historian and don't really want to do as a critic, right. which right. is, I mean, I love archives. I love primary research, but the idea of having to get every detail right, and it's your responsibility <laughs> to do it and show all your work. I mean, thank God people do it. I love reading a good show business biography, but totally. that, that seemed to me, it seemed like diminishing returns. Like it's so exhausting and you pour your entire soul into it. And then somebody writes another biography in 20 years, you know, and obviously there will be many more books on this subject and related subjects. But yeah, I think I, I felt like I need to write the book that only I can write. And that is not that kind of book. Wow. Well, I mean, I completely was so blown away by your book, Cameraman. It is not as something that I was expecting to fall so deeply into, but it's it's really like a full, it's not a normal like biography. You don't go deeply into great grandparents coming over or anything like that. Um, it's 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 really different. And I'd love for you to talk about the book for, for, the, for the listeners at home who might not know what you accomplished here. Um, I, mean, I mean, I'll start with the thing that you were just talking about, which is the structure of it being unusual. So this is almost like, I feel like it's a warning or a disclaimer I need to give people if they do go in thinking, I'm going to learn everything A to Z about the life of Buster Keaton. I mean, that is not exactly the case, but nor do you have to go in having done homework and having read something already, right? I mean, I completely wrote it for somebody who is utterly new to the subject, for sure. But the idea in my mind, and you can tell me to what degree it worked, would be that it would be almost like a cultural history of his lifespan. You know, that's my, that's my thumbnail phrase for what it is. So it's a, it's a sort of cultural history of the time between when he was born, which is 1895, and when he died, which is 1966. And what struck me in thinking about that lifespan over the course of years of reading about him is just that it's not an extremely long lifespan. It's 70 years, right? It's like a nice, just biblical span of time. But, but think of how much changed in American history and, you know, the way people lived and transported themselves around and moved right, right. and, you know, related to one another in those 70 years of history, you know, so I guess the idea was to sort of look at that history as it moved through the life of this remarkable figure whose life story is interesting in itself. Yeah, I mean, I love that he started in vaudeville in, in, as, a, as a family as a part of a family act that just is there that it world vaudeville world is so so um romantic to me there's there's something about it even though i know that like trotting the boards is probably uh exhausting and terrible in many ways um it does have a sort of romance to it and it was a it was a fascinating place to start there's a fluidness to the whole book that's really exciting where you don't know necessarily what you're going to get from the next page. You might get a, a capsule biography of another actor. You might find out something about, you know, the technology at the time. And I'm curious, how did you go about finding the rhythm of what, when to go into something else, when to pull back to Keaton, et cetera? 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I certainly <laughs> doubted many, many times. And I still, when I opened the book, wonder, like, did I find the rhythm? I'm still all aware of the places where I think this is too long. This rabbit hole is too deep. This should be different. Um, but really, I just followed my own curiosity. You know, I would say, like, my framing for every chapter was looking at that period of his life and thinking, what does this make me want to know more about? Right. So when he was a child, as you said, a child star in vaudeville. And, you know, there were a lot of family acts in vaudeville at the time. That was not an unusual thing to have a kid on stage, but the kind of act that they had and the violence of the slapstick in, in their family act, and in particular in the sort of father-son dynamic in their act, was unusual at the time and remarkable and to our modern eye kind of shocking the way that this child was treated. And when I tried to understand his childhood, the thing that it made me think about was, you know, child labor law, child abuse law, essentially the sort of legal status of children at the turn of the century, because that was a very live question in his childhood. There were always authorities you know, from the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, pursuing his family and trying to shut down the act. And they were kind of escaping that. And he tells those tales later in a very uh, mischievous kind of way, almost like this was so fun that we managed to evade the authorities. But when you think about what the authorities were trying to do, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated situation. So that made me just start thinking about, you know, the progressive movement and reforms and the way children were treated and thought about at the turn of the century and how that impacted and didn't impact his life. You know, I mean, you can tell that whole story about how, you know, suddenly child abuse is against the law in the late 19th century. And suddenly children have to go to school up to a certain age at least. But none of those things really affected him. He was still a child of the 19th century in that way, even though he was of the future in so many other ways. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was struck by that. And I really was thinking a lot about that relationship with his father and how like all of his biggest, all these, his biggest moments growing up were stage related. Like, I just feel like that could have caused a different sort of performer to really decide like, that's it. But he kind of stayed in it, like born in the darkness, staying in the darkness type of thing. Yeah, a strange thing about his career, film as well as stage is that in a way he never chose it. I mean, he did choose to make the transition from stage to film, but he never chose to become a performer, really. He was just born into that family and that was what they did. And so that was what he did. And something that I really get into in the part about his childhood is that it's not the case that he was born into some sort of successful vaudeville family and was just trained to be part of the act. He really made the act successful. You know, his parents were pretty unsuccessful vaudevillians who were barely getting by. And when their just turned five-year-old son joined the act with them, all of a sudden, within a very short space of time, like about six months, they were playing the top vaudeville house in the country. So he was this kind of slapstick prodigy. And that story is really fascinating to trace in the primary documents where you look at the way their act was written about by reviewers, you know, critics at the time. Yeah, I, I was so... Um... I was so drawn to this other um, branch that you were following at different points of the book of the role of the critic, because of course, the um, as film rose, film critics, the job shows up. And as a critic, I felt like you must have had an interesting insight or, or a point of view as you were watching this nascent um, genre invent itself. Yeah, those were two of the chapters that were the funnest to research. There are two chapters back to back that are in some way or another about film criticism. And one is sort of about how the star system and film criticism grew up together, right? That, because there's this crazy period in film history, I think not that many people realize. But until around 1910 or 1911, actors in movies were not identified on screen by credits. So you didn't know who was in a movie. So you might decide, 
oh, I have a crush on that blonde girl from Biograph, but you don't know that it's Mary Pickford because right. her name is not on screen and the producers would deliberately try to conceal the identities of the players so that the actors would not ask for more money and so that it wouldn't turn into an actor's medium, more or less. But what started to happen in the 1910s was that it just became clear that that, that was not a sustainable system. People were gonna find out the identities of these movie stars they were obsessed with. And part of the way that happened was through early film magazines. And I write about this a bit which had these features called the answer man column or something like that, at least in one magazine, it was called that. And, you know, you'd write in and say, who's the blonde girl in the biograph movies. And then you would start your Mary Pickford fandom that way, you know? Right. So that was a really fascinating phenomenon to trace that was again, growing up along with Keaton because he was born the same year as film. That's something that we forgot to say at the beginning, but 1895, the year of his birth is also the year that the Lumiere brothers first project motion pictures. Right. And, that's an observation that's made in every Keaton biography. I mean, it's probably on Wikipedia. Like everybody makes that note about him and sort of says, ah, isn't it kind of a cool irony or something? So that also means that he grew up alongside movies and alongside movie criticism and so forth. The other chapter about criticism is about Robert Sherwood, who is this fascinating figure who really did deserve a sort of mini capsule bio, which is what that chapter tries to be. He was a, a critic at Life for many years, for most of the 20s and also the editor-in-chief of Life at, at one point, and went on to have a fascinating life in many other ways you can read about. But his life also intersected with Keaton's in all these fascinating ways. He loved him as a critic and was always boosting and championing his work. Yet he hated The General, the movie that we now consider kind of Keaton's masterpiece. He tried to write a movie for Keaton once and it didn't really work out. Right. Anyway, I mean, as soon as I started reading about Robert Sherwood, I realized he needed a chapter of his own. So that kind of goes back to your question about why all these digressions? The answer is basically that's where my curiosity went. And I'm just really glad that it works for anyone because I realized that it's a very strange structure for a book. It is, but I, I feel like structure is the last bastion of um, innovation for books. It's just like how we structure and how we get the ideas through. I feel like that's the, um, that's the thing that people are still innovating mm. as far as like the pages of a book go. And so I felt very much like this, this whole time that I was reading this, I was like, this is a completely different thing. I've never read a nonfiction book like this before that could, could go into these things and, and not feel like I'm not reading the same book anymore. Right. Well, thank you. Cause that was a big challenge when writing it, obviously, and like a, f- a fearful thing in sending it out to new people. Do you know the book River of Shadows by Rebecca Solnit? I don't. So that's a book that I thought about in structuring this book, and that was an inspiration for, at the very least, the freedom to kind of think, maybe I can do something different. I mean, it's a, it's a different book, but it is also the story of one individual, which is Edward Meebridge, the photographer who took those you know famous photos of the running horse that are often called the kind of basis of cinema. Um, and he also, that photographer, had this very long and strange and fascinating life involving photographing the railroad extension across the West and getting involved in a murder trial and all of these crazy things. Um, And she is a wonderful writer. And she did a sort of history of the American West basically through the life of Edward Meebridge. Not something that I would have thought that I would have wanted to read and yet it's one of my favorite books. So yeah, I think there is is a precedent for, you know, zigzagging biographies. Right. Um, But uh, yeah, but it's, it's something that you definitely feel like is anybody going to follow me on this journey? Totally. Well, I, I definitely followed you into Sherwood, and it also made me wonder, as a as a film critic, do you feel like there are any actors who you feel like you have that same like Sherwood and Keaton like connection to? Like, is there any actor who you could be like, you know, I would love to write a movie for them if I was mm. able to? 
Oh, that's such a great question. I mean, I don't think of myself as a screenwriter or, or a person who could write fiction at all. That's a whole separate conversation. But it's, it, to me, it feels like even though I write, it's a completely different brain mechanism than someone who would just make up a story <laughs> and actually and actually find a beginning, middle, and end for it. But who is an actor that I vibe with in that way? I don't know. I mean, there, I can name actors that I would I, I feel like don't get pushed to their limit. You know, that I would like to be able to see them do more than they do. Like I think Jennifer Jason Leigh is a total genius, and and too often, especially now that she's in her middle age, has been pushed into roles of kind of the frowning ex-wife or something right. like that. Right. Um, I mean, she literally played her own ex-husband's frowning ex-wife in that Noah Baumbach movie that I'm not going to remember right. the name of now. Margot at the wedding, I think. Mm -hmm. um, She's somebody that I would love to see in more things that I wish I could write for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and who else can I think of? I mean, Oscar Isaac. I saw Oscar Isaac play Hamlet and, mm -hmm. uh, and it was one of the best Hamlets I've ever seen. And yeah, and ever since then I've sort of felt like, you know, very few people have used him as well as he could be used. The Coen brothers have and inside Louis Davis, but I really hope he doesn't disappear into Star Wars land because he's also capable of great things. I don't know if that really answers your question, but I love those two. No, that, that was great. Tell me about writing out the descriptions of the movies themselves. I feel like that's a really interesting creative problem um, to sit there and like describe movies in a way that like doesn't just sit that you're not just sitting there and describing things scene by scene. And it seemed like right. there was something that you were having a good time with as well. And that is a hard thing. And in, in, as a critic too, in weekly movie criticism, it's hard to decide what role does, you know, plot summary play in a review. Nobody wants to read a summary of a plot. And, but you have to know enough about the movie to, to be able to say something about it, right? And so there's this question about, well, spoiling for one thing, how much do you give away? Um, and then how do you keep it from just being a plotting plot summary that takes up a whole paragraph of its own? But when it gets blown up to book size, that's even more tricky. And the chapter I'm thinking of when you when you said plot summaries or, you know, how do you sort of summarize a movie? I was thinking of the chapter called Brooms, which is about his years with Arbuckle. It's about essentially mm -hmm. the, the Keaton Arbuckle shorts that were made between 1917 and 1920 or so. And there's a lot of shorts to go through. You know, they made something like, I don't know, 14 short movies together. And I talk about a lot of them. And I was really afraid that that Brooms chapter just was sort of a bundle of plot summaries. You know, I kept on going over it and over it thinking it doesn't have a theme. It doesn't have a, you know, all these things we're talking about, about pulling out the camera to a larger historical perspective. This chapter doesn't do that. It's just about plot summaries. And I'm still not sure that I've completely solved that trick with that chapter, you know, but there, there are these moments where you have to, as a critic, toggle between the mechanics, you know, of like laying out the text you're talking about and getting into the analysis of it. I guess the Brooms chapter has something of a theme in that, I mean, it's about the reason it's called Brooms is because it's about how the very first thing he did in his very first moment on film was to do this little bit of comedy with a broom. Mm -hmm. And the broom had been a big prop on his, on the stage with his father. They were always making up acts of, you know, battling each other with brooms and pulling brooms out of holes on the stage. And I don't know, it's very hard to picture why exactly how, but Joe and Buster Keaton were constantly doing things with brooms. So the theme of that chapter is essentially how did he adapt his stage self, that old right. style of stage comedy into his new filmic self. I was loving that stuff partially because I, I, I read this book as basically a Keaton neophyte. I mean, I've read, I've seen uh, The General 
and that's that was kind of it. Of course, I've seen collections in the YouTube era of his stunts, like Buster Keaton's craziest stunts. Right. But I, but I had never known like that they were what what movies they had come from or what even the the story that set up those stunts where I just saw him jumping from things and doing things with railroad ties and all of that. Right, right, right. So it was, it was, it was essential from, for reading the book to, to get your descriptions of the plot. So I was, um, I was amazed at how well that was working. Well, thanks. Well, one thing I have to say about that, and this is how my brother read the book, although I didn't, I didn't tell him to, but he kind of invented this way of reading it is that he just watched almost everything as he went along. So he took two months to finish the book. Um, and I was so flattered that he was interested enough that he would jump down those rabbit holes. And almost all these films, I should say, I should have said this in the intro to the book, are really easily available. You know, yeah. I mean, the Keaton films are, they're probably on YouTube streaming in their entirety. They're almost certainly on archive.org. And that's just for free. I mean, if you get into the realm of, you know, wanting to get physical media, there's gorgeous restorations of them with incredible extras. You know, so depending what level you want to buy in on, it's not at all hard to see every single movie I talk about. All the silence, for sure. Definitely. I mean, that was a really fun part of this reading experience was like, ooh, that's a new one. And just taking a pause and going and watching some of it on YouTube because you really can just search it by title and and you'll find, if not, and you can find them by scene sometimes, just describing some of the things that you described in the scene. I can get just that little gag. Right. Um, and you couldn't necessarily guarantee that those versions are, you know, the highest quality or the no. original cut that you would have seen. They might have weird intertitles in Polish or something like that. You know, who knows where stuff on YouTube comes from. But like to actually see those images is not hard. And it's one of those moments where you realize like the public domain is so valuable. You know, I mean, no, I want people yes. to support all the great companies that are putting out Keaton stuff, you know, and yes. there are a lot of wonderful film historians and restorers putting things together. But I also think that it should be free. You know, it's, it should be part of our patrimony. I love that idea. Well, my hope is this book will get enough people curious about streaming stuff for free is that a certain portion of them will take it to the next level and say, you know, I'm going to get the Kino Lorber collection of restored shorts or something because that stuff is all beautiful. I'm curious, how much did you know about Buster Keaton before you started the project? And, and was when you decided to start writing a book, was it like, yes, it's been Keaton all along or... Or was there a couple different things up for focusing on for you? I mean, as for the answer, well, the first the first question is kind of answered in the introduction, basically, which is, you know, that I, I, 25 years ago now, or a little bit more, in 1996, I was in France. I was studying in Strasbourg in the north of France. Not film. I was getting a graduate degree in literature, and I was there because the professor I wanted to study with was there anyway. I was there for the year and it so happened it was the uh, centenary of his birth, which was 95. I was there in the 1995-96 school year. And so this little cinematheque in the town of Strasbourg organized this great film festival that was essentially all of his silent features and all of his silent shorts multiple times, you know, over the course of probably 20 days. I still have the brochure for this festival and it was a life-changing event for me. I was already a film head, you know, I already loved movies. I didn't know much about silent film though. I mean, I hadn't grown up having a chance to see it a lot. And I just became obsessed immediately and had to know more about who this figure was, who seemed almost like a cartoon. You know, the way he moved was almost like he was a drawn figure against a background of real people or something. You know, I just, I had to know more about him. And that Cinematheque had a little library attached to it that was in the basement. And because the French love Keaton, they had quite a few books on him. 
um, all in French. So I think the first things I read about him were American biographies of him translated into French that I later went back in the States and read in English. Um, but I just wanted to read everything they had and figure out who he was and how he had happened in history. And then I started to discover all these other things about his life, of course, like the vaudeville childhood, which is amazing. And, you know, the story of his midlife, which is this kind of story of, you know, this tragic story of failure and then redemption. And I mean, his life story is just interesting. Like a Wikipedia version of his life story is interesting, right? Totally. So he just became kind of a hobby of mine. I think a lot of people with Keaton or maybe with Chaplin or other figures from that time have this kind of archival interest. You know, it's great to just sort of dig into memorabilia and, you know, read old coverage of them and things like that. So it became a kind of hobby of mine over the next 20 years or so that it would be, if something was connected to his life that came out, I'd be interested. Like, hey, a Louis B. Mayer biography. I think I'll read that, you know. So in a way, I was researching the book all that time, although I didn't really know it. Um, and then in 2015, when I signed the contract to write the book, the initial idea had more to do with writing a book than writing this book, honestly. You know, I wanted to just expand as a writer and try to do something deeper mm -hmm. and, um, and to explore different uh, interests, just to have something else to write about besides whatever happened to be released that week. You know, I think right. at a certain point, the churn of popular culture wears out every critic and you want to see what else you can do as a writer. So in the year that I was doing that and talking to this editor about it, he turned out to be the acquiring editor of the book. Um, that old passion just kind of came back. You know, there was a time that I was having coffee with this wonderful editor, Rakesh Satyal, who ended up kind of developing the book with me. And we, I wasn't really coming up with an idea, but we just kind of connected. And as we were saying goodbye, he said, well, we didn't really come up with a real pitch this time, but look back into your past and think about, you know, old loves of your past and things that maybe you loved in graduate school or earlier in your life that you, um, you know, kind of didn't get to pursue as you wanted to. And then that was a moment that I said to him something like, well, I've been in love with Buster Keaton for 20 years, but that couldn't yeah. certainly be a book, could it? And that was what ended up turning into the book. Unfortunately, he left the house before the book was completely done, but he did edit about two thirds of it with me. Oh, that's so, that's so fun. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he still got to work on it. Oh yeah, I mean, it wouldn't exist without him because you really do, I feel like this is, here's my advice to writers moment. I think it really does depend some project like this on finding either the right editor or the right agent or the right, you know, some, some individual person who connects with your idea and wants to protect it, you know, and, and who doesn't, um, you know, who trusts you to, to develop something. And that was really what Rakesh was for me and I'm very grateful. How has studying Buster's life changed how you watch the movies of today or have, or has it? I mean, this is more broad maybe than that question, but just the, the fact of delving into the past period, regardless of whether it was him or the, all many other silent movies and silent filmmakers that I watched in, in researching. I don't know. I guess one, one answer would be it made me realize how sophisticated cinema has been for so long. You know, I mean, it, it is really completely wrong to think of that era, the silent era, as a primitive era of filmmaking or, you know, a time when filmmaking was finding its legs or something like that. It really, filmmaking had reached this incredibly high degree of polish and sophistication by the late 20s and in fact took a big step backwards for a while when sound came in you know, because cameras couldn't move as much all of a sudden and sound stages locked people down. And, you know, there's this period in the very early 30s that I write about a bit where movies feel more primitive than they did in, you know, 1910 or something like that. Right. 
So, I mean, I, maybe this isn't answering how it projects forward into today's movies, but one thing it kept me from doing was thinking of film history as a progression, you know, or any kind of history as a progression. Mm. Because, I mean, I think arguably you could say there was more experimentation and more, you know, Wild West kind of innovation happening in film in its first 25 or 30 years than there have been in the last 25 or 30 years, for sure. I, I love that you say that film isn't a progression. It, it, it's just, it, what, what would you say it is instead? Uh, I don't know, because you couldn't say it's <laughs> cyclical exactly either. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's a constant self-reinvention, but just that reinvention times. is always being impacted by forces from the outside, you know, and the, the book traces what some of those were on Keaton, but we're, you know, now we're being impacted by all these other ones. For example, trying to keep theaters open during the pandemic, you know, we're still only able to make movies in the context of the economic and historical forces we're in the midst of. Do you have a favorite thing that like came, that little fact that popped up for you that you were just like, oh, I love that about Buster <laughs> while you were, I, I'll tell you mine while I was reading it was just that he had that train set that he set up at his villa that like would bring drinks around to people. Um, <laughs> That, that wasn't even at his villa. That was just at his at his house, you know, very modest ranch house that he lived at the end of his life. But yeah, I mean, he loved rigging up as his movies are full of, right? He loved rigging up Rube Goldberg machines and weird yes. kind of, um, you know, houses that had little convenience machines in them. That's one of his recurring jokes in movie after movie, like One Week has that and Scarecrow has that. A lot of his early silence have it. But in his real life, that was what he liked to do. So yeah, the house that he lived in for the last... I guess, 20 years or so of his life with his third wife, the place that he was the happiest, really. He had a little railroad car that went from the garage. And I wish I had a map of exactly what it did, but through the house into the backyard. And he would take his grandchildren or whoever was out there, you know, Cokes and hot dogs on top of a little train. I loved that so much. Did you have anything that you were just tickled by like that? I mean, I love that fact, but I already knew that because a bunch of people had written about it. I think something that I learned that I never knew, and it didn't make it into the book, but now it's, it's my next Keaton pilgrimage I want to do, is that he, was, he, he loved to embroider late in his life and that he had, you know, he would give people like these embroidered objects. And his granddaughter, Melissa Talmadge Cox, who I interviewed for the book and met a couple times, and she lives in Northern California, has this necktie that he embroidered by hand. It's apparently this beautiful embroidery job. And it makes complete sense that, I mean, he was very mechanical and he grew up in the theater and there's, you know, the, a picture of him sewing a curtain from when he was in his twenties or something. Like I think sewing was part of being on the road in the theater, but the idea that as an old man, that he wanted to play bridge, which watch television and embroider neckties. I just, I love that fact. God, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I can totally picture him sitting somewhere and embroidering. That's like his face seems like sort of drawn in that way. That's that'd be perfect for, staring down at the little details. Right, and he was really good with his hands. You know, he loved machines and fixing things. And I, I feel like sewing sort of fits into that in some way, but, but yet it's odd and unexpected too. And so I just, that's a detail that I love. You read what seems like a ton of primary sources, ma magazines and newspapers about the world. Um, uh, as it was. And I'm curious if you found a familiar attitude towards life. Um, if, if humanity seems to have been relating to the world in the same way as they do now or um, in their writing about being alive 
<laughs> wow, that is such a good question. I mean, it's such a broad ranging question. The first thing I thought of when you said that is uh, something that I talk about in, in, in one of those chapters about criticism and the development of criticism, um, about Chaplin snobbery, you know, and about this kind of divide in people that were writing about theater and film, you know, whether Chaplin was some sort of vulgar newcomer who was going to ruin the theatrical business, or was he this genius who was reinventing what cinema could be, you know, he was this incredibly famous figure. So in 1915-16, the years of so-called Chaplinitis, you sort of had to have a critical position on him, whether you were pro or anti-Chaplin, which is kind of funny for us to imagine now. I mean, not him as a person or anything about, you know, the later debates about his personal life and politics, et cetera, but just like the fact that there's a funny guy on screen, you know, that people are going crazy for. And, um, and so I write about the debate between, you know, this one writer who was supporting him and another who was essentially saying, I've never seen any movie, a Chaplin movie or any other movie. And I think this, this critic says something like, um, which is a great distinction in itself, right? So he's proud <laughs> that he's refusing this new technology. And that to me was just funny because it's just get off my lawn, you know? I right. mean, it's just with every new technology, there's going to be some group of people who snobbishly resist it for as long as possible. And there's going to be innovation happening in that technology that's a little bit suspect to some of the people who weren't ready for it. So that's something that was familiar. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, I, and the Chaplin thing, I was thinking that that felt very familiar to, I guess, Marvel movies is what it is now. It's just like you have to have some sort of opinion of are you for them or against them? Do you think they're art or do you think they're schlock? I feel like that, right. that sort of divide remains and we're, we've just subbed in, you know, all of Marvel instead of right. Chaplin. Right. There was this great parallel that that showed up, I think about a third of the way through the book um, with F. Scott Fitzgerald. And you start to talk about their parallel lives. When did F. Scott show himself in your research? And because and, he really ends up being like the the shadow figure to, to Keaton. Yeah, that chapter really did just come out of a whole bunch of coincidences. You know, when you're doing historical research, sometimes things present themselves just because they happened in the same year or the same place. And that kept on happening with Fitzgerald in a way that was fascinating. I mean, I'm not the first to observe, and I think it was his biographer, Tom Dardis, who observed that they started work at MGM in 1937 in the same week. And this was Keaton's second time around at MGM, not when he went there as their top comedy star, you know, in, in the late 20s, and then left in ignominy in 1933 because, you know, he was drinking too much and not showing up to set and his life was a mess. Not in that period, but, you know, after you know, going through rehab, getting remarried, kind of clawing his way back to sobriety and relative happiness, which I think in his late life became really true happiness. Um, he got another job at MGM as a behind the scenes gag writer. So he was writing gags for the Marx Brothers and Red Skelton and whoever came along that needed some sort of physical comedy business. He had an office in the writer's room. And so did F. Scott Fitzgerald, who went back to work, not back, but went to work for the first time for MGM Studios in the same week of 1937. And so I guess the, the supposition of that chapter, the kind of premise that kicks it off is, I wonder if they ever crossed paths at MGM. You know, they had to have, there's no way that they didn't at the very least, you know, nod at each other in the hallways if they're working there at the same time. Um, but outside of the biographical question of whether they knew each other or physically met, there were just so many parallels in their lives as artists. You know, they had become extremely famous at a very young age at exactly the same time, you know, I mean, I guess Keaton was younger on the stage that he was famous, but his first film was in 1920, one week, his first independently produced film. 
and you know it was a big success and kind of launched him off on his career with his own studio. That same year, F. Scott Fitzgerald publishes *The Sight of Paradise*, his his first novel, which rockets him into the stratosphere. And they're both these kind of jazz age figures. You know, they both have a period in the mid twenties where they're doing amazing work, like *The Great Gatsby* and *The General*, that is not really appreciated in its time. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't really get a great reception. And then they both go downhill at almost exactly the same time, you know, and hit the skids and start drinking really hard and their marriages fall apart. And so the fact that they had sort of clawed their way arrived to, at, at this place where they could both have a day job at MGM in 37 seems so fascinating to me. And then because of that research, I started reading The Last Tycoon, um, Fitzgerald's last novel, his unfinished novel, which I'd read many years before on some Fitzgerald jag, but that was before I really knew much about MGM and, and Keaton and Irving Thalberg and all the stuff that I write about in that chapter. And The Last Tycoon is just a beautiful, vivid picture of exactly what MGM was like in the exact years that both of them were there together. So it would just be ridiculous not to read that book kind of weaving in and out with Keaton's life. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved it. And it also made me think about this other novel um, that that focuses just on that period of Fitzgerald's life called West of Sunset by Stuart Onan. It's a great little novel about just Fitzgerald's uh, difficult years at MGM and and what it was like for him to try to write during that time. Oh, I would love to read that because that's also interesting. And Sheila Graham, his girlfriend and partner at that time, right? is a really fascinating figure herself. And yeah, I'd happily read that novel. There was a Buster Keaton biopic that was, you say it's terrible in the book, um, or it, he hated it anyway. And it's pretty, um, it's pretty objectively terrible. <laughs> and I'm curious because I, I mean, I don't think bio, I think biopics are really difficult for many reasons. Um, but I, I would be curious to hear if you think that if there's anyone who could be Buster Keaton from today's cavalcade of stars. A bunch of people have asked me that in the course of writing this and and even since it came out. And I don't, for the young Keaton, I really don't have an answer. And I think part of the mystery of the book is that, you know, I don't have an answer because somebody like that doesn't just come along every, every generation. When it comes to the older Keaton, I could think of a few different actors who could play him. I feel like Philip Baker Hall looks a lot like the old Keaton and has a little of that kind of somber quality to his face. He's 90 years old now, so he might be too old to play. Keaton only lived to be 70. Uh, or even Al Pacino. I mean, I think anybody who could, who could channel that sort of clown-like sadness, you know, of his old self could, could be great in that role. And even a middle-aged Keaton, I would go as far as saying maybe, and I know this guy is a huge Keaton fan, Bill Hader could maybe Mm. play him, you know, in his forties or however old Bill Hader is now. But the young Keaton who could do all of those stunts and all those things in the movies, I just don't, I don't see who does it. I mean, unless you substitute in a stunt person and then it's not really Keaton, you know, he, right. because he never used one. I mean, I can imagine Timothy Chalamet being cast as him because he looks a little like him in, in right. his younger days. But, you know, I seriously doubt he could come anywhere close to doing any of that movement. But it's not just the movement. I think it is also just the, um, that pantomimic quality he had of being like so completely expressive with his body, you know, because it would require somebody who has experience as a dancer, you know, the mm-hmm. ability to kind of, you know, at least do some basic stunts, even if it has to be augmented with CGI in our modern day. And I was talking about this with a friend of mine who who has a really excellent screenplay, not produced at all, 
um, but a, a screenplay about the older Keaton and sort of looking back on his life. And his idea was that you would just use the actual old films for those memories, right. you know, that there wouldn't be any way to reproduce them and you wouldn't want to because you would want to make them seem remote and distant from his older life. So I like that idea. It's not quite the same thing, um, but I, I heard a rumor that um, Chris Evans is going to be playing Gene Kelly in a movie. And I was just thinking, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, if my that's... God. I will recast that role for you right now. Channing Tatum should play Gene Kelly. He oh, he clearly like wants to. And he's an extraordinary <laughs> dancer and he dances like him. Right. I mean, he's, he's dancing in that Coen Brothers movie that I'm going to forget the name of. The old Hail Hollywood Caesar. one. Hail Caesar. Yeah. It's clearly patterned after Gene Kelly. So that is a total casting error. <laughs> I mean, maybe Chris Evans can even dance. And I like Chris Evans, but Channing Tatum is right there. I, I, I do like when a, I guess like not a real biopic, but when it's just a historical figure and you just choose like a couple of weeks of their life or a, a month. Right. And I just feel like that's what, that would be the Buster Keaton movie. I mean, do, do you think that there's a particular story or stretch that would be like, oh, do this period as a movie. Don't do the whole life. I don't know. Gosh, it's hard. I mean, it almost, I almost feel like it's so packed. It has to be a mini series, but then just please don't let it fall into the hands of Ryan Murphy or something, you know? <laughs> You made him this modern figure in my mind that he he was just a complete modern man like the or the idea of he was he's not like sepia toned history that he's just as modern as anything else that made me think like as I'm watching things on TikTok like as people do insane stunts just in their own backyards that he would have loved it he he seemed to embrace technology as it came and I feel like he probably would have been very good at TikTok or Reels or, or social media. <laughs> right. I mean, he kind of is good at them without even being alive, you know, because I can't think of any figure. Of course, I'm existing in a filter bubble where I see a lot of Keaton, especially right now. But I just can't think of any figure who's as gifable from that period, you know, <laughs> who survived as much in the form of like a digital figure, you know. And, you know, there's whole great Twitter accounts and Instagram accounts dedicated to just GIFs and images from his films that stand alone. As you say, whether you know the context or not, they express some idea or emotion just so succinctly, you know? Yeah, so perfectly. Well, you brought a, a contemporary um, of his, Fernando Pessoa's book, The Book of Disquiet, for, um, is what you recommended to read for a companion piece, perhaps. And I'm curious, what, what brought Pessoa to mind for you? And, and the Book of Disquiet. Well, for one thing, Pessoa is, is biographically in my own biography related to Keaton and to the discovery of Keaton because I wrote my dissertation on him, my, my PhD dissertation in Comp Lit. So the reason I was in Strasbourg that year that I discovered Keaton at the film festival was because I was trying to write this dissertation on Pessoa, um, which I did eventually finish, but that particular year I took a long zag into the world of Buster Keaton instead. Um, and this book, The Book of Disquiet, was not the specific book I was writing on. In fact, there wasn't that much about it in my dissertation, but it's probably my favorite of his books and, um, and maybe one of the more accessible, although I, I have to ask you whether you found it accessible or not, because it's talk about strange structure. I mean, this is just a bundle of fragments. Right. Well, will you tell uh, the listeners sort of, will you describe it in your own words before I have my say? <laughs> Well, okay, first then I have to do a tiny little bio sketch of Pessoa, yes. who was more or less a contemporary of Keaton's. He died pretty young. He basically drank himself to death. He had a very sad life in some ways. But the thing you sort of need to know about him biographically is that 
he wrote under all of these different personae, these different names. So he was somebody who barely published during his life. He had a job in Lisbon, he's Portuguese. He had a job in Lisbon as a commercial translator, translating business letters and things like that. Um, but it was like Kafka where he had his day job in an office and then he went home and wrote all of these things that unlike Kafka, he barely even tried to publish. So after his death in 1935, this trunk, this famous trunk of papers was discovered with his effects that had 27,000 fragments of paper in it. And that was his life's work. I mean, he had published a few poems and maybe an essay or something during his life. And he kind of moved in literary circles, but he was certainly not known as a writer during his life. Oh and God. so it was only in the decades after his death that, you know, this work in part because of some friends of his that, you know, just knew that he was a brilliant mind and wanted to know what was on these pieces of paper. Uh, help to edit all of these things and figure out, well, what belongs to whom and where is this stuff supposed to go? And that was particularly hard in his case because he had up to, you know, different scholars have counted the personae in different ways, but he had something like 72, what he called heteronyms, which is his own word, right? As opposed to pseudonyms. So instead of being a false name, a pseudonym, it was an other name, like another mm -hmm. identity for him. And these different identities, you know, had their own genres. They wrote letters to each other, they critiqued each other's work. You know, it was just this whole imaginative universe that existed inside of his brain that he had been creating his whole life. And um, so this book, The Book of Disquiet, is actually, it's, it's credited to him on the spine, so that we know it's by Fernando Pessoa, but the character that he was writing it as is named Bernardo Suarez. So, and, um, and that character, you know, has his own kind of voice, like many of Pessoa's heteronyms were poets, most of them were poets. But Suarez was a prose writer. And so this is one of his only all prose works. And nobody knows what order these fragments were supposed to go in. So it's possible that you and I are reading two different editions and that we're looking at a different book completely because like Kafka's trial, which was also put together from you know a bunch of pieces, um, just different people have decided what goes where in the Book of Disquiet. They know because of the way he would mark the fragments of paper that they belong in the Book of Disquiet. But there's no sense of, you know, these little, these little fragments about wandering around Lisbon that they're, that they're meant to tell any particular story. So it is kind of, I almost regard it as a, a poetry book because you can just pick it up and open it to any page. There's short little passages that are like little mini essays and you don't have to absorb it from beginning to end and understand its entire arc. You know, you can really right. just treat it as a bedside book. There is, there is no arc. If you're trying to create an arc to it, it will not happen because that's not, I mean, I, I read this, uh, my edition was edited and translated by Richard Zenith and he's mm, got this, these notes that are just like, there's also points where they're like, we're not sure if this is the word that he meant because his handwriting was terrible, right. uh, but, but we're pretty sure that this was the sentence that he was going for. I just remember when I was researching this, meeting somebody who was a handwriting expert in Pessoa, like that was her deal. You know, she, I think she was a librarian, but the main thing she could do was decipher his handwriting really well and also date the pieces of paper and figure out when they were from. And when I talk about, thank God for archivists, that's what I mean. It's, I would never have the patience or talent or ability to do that. But the fact that somebody is doing that, you know, so that Richard Zenith can make this wonderful translation. And by the way, again, cause it's a books podcast, Richard Zenith, the, the translator of this edition, just published in the last few months a, a huge biography of Pessoa that I can't wait to read. I mean, it's, I have it sitting next to me right now. It's at least three inches wide, the spine. So I'm scared wow. to tell you how many pages it is, but, um, but he's, you know, the guy, he's sort of the English language Pessoa expert. So I'm sure it's a great book. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing that it, I was thinking about while I was reading this was the constant reminder that this is a factless autobiography. It's, so it's just like, there's no facts. This, it's just vibes. It's just what he was thinking about. He's <laughs> so vibes. <laughs> and the vibes are depressing. He is not a happy man. <laughs> the entire time no. that I was reading this, I was, by the way, I also do not recommend reading this cover to cover as I attempted. Um, I really I should have told you to dip in and out. I'm sorry. I knew based on all of the notes and the introduction that you should dip in and out, but I also um, don't like following directions. So I was thinking like, no, I'm different. I can, but man, hanging with this guy, it just seems like it was incredibly difficult to be Bernardo Suarez <laughs> slash uh, Pessoa because yeah. it just seems sad. I mean, I almost feel like I th I'm pretty sure that this is the case. Like, I feel like Pessoa channeled some of his depression into Bernardo Suarez. You know, he was Pessoa was it when he was an alcoholic. Like I said, he drank himself to death. Like he had a he was had a, had a pretty lonely life. He never married. It's not known whether he ever had a girlfriend or boyfriend. It's possible that he was a, a repressed gay man because he had a lot of very close male friends that he wrote very lovingly about. But he seems to have been someone who just kept to himself his whole life, went to his job, came home, drank and wrote, and that's all he did. Um, and in Bernardo Suarez, you really see the, the sadder parts of that life. For example, Bernardo Suarez actually has a worse job than Pessoa did. He has a really <laughs> miserable office job that means nothing to him. Whereas Pessoa, because he was bilingual, trilingual and spoke French and English very well and could write in those languages, he was kind of a valuable employee in his, in his little business world and kind of came and went as, as he pleased. But, but Bernardo Suarez is really just locked to an to a office chair, like a Kafka kind of figure. And his only moments of freedom happen as he's walking around Lisbon. And part of what I love about this book is it's a really great city book. It's a book that really gives you the spirit of a city. And yes. if you go to Lisbon, I mean, there's Pessoa sites. You know, for one thing, he's a huge, huge figure in the culture there. So there's, you know, statues of him and a museum for him and so forth. But there are also just many sites that he writes about very specifically. And you can still go and see what they look like. The passage that I wanted to read from this book, but I wasn't able to find it in time before our recording is the part where he sees the bananas in the street. It's one of the few parts of the book that isn't depressing. It's a really joyous moment where he sees a fruit seller selling some bananas and thinks about how golden they are in the sun and how lucky he is to get to see them. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Um, I don't. I, I did find something that I was going to read, though, if you don't. Oh, yeah, please do. Please do. Because I just I just think that this um, it it felt like a capsule moment that sort of speaks to how he sees the world. Um, and it's entry number 407 on the- Okay, I'll follow along. Um, and it's, I'm, I might not read the whole thing, but just the start of it, God created me to be a child and willed that I remain a child. But why did he let life beat me up, take away my toys and leave me alone during playtime, my weak hands clutching at my blue tear-stained smock? If I couldn't live without loving care, why was this thrown out with the rubbish? Ah, every time I see a child crying in the street, left on his own, the jolting horror of my exhausted heart grieves me even more than the child's sadness. I grieve with every pore of my emotional life, and it is my hands that wring the corner of the child's smock, my mouth that is contorted by real tears, my weakness, my loneliness. And all the laughs from the adult life passing by are like the flames of matches struck against the sensitive fabric of my heart. 
Wow, you you picked a real downer of a passage. There. I just thought, boy, he can't. He this guy is having a hard time being alive. I mean, that passage is extremely depressing, and I would also say that it is more maudlin than most of the book. I mean, there is a sense of humor in this book, not as much as in some other works of Pessoa, where he can be really funny. Um, but but I feel like there is there are moments where he has a little bit more perspective on the world and in that very bleak moment of the child's hands wringing out his smock. But the thing that that reminded me of is a line from a very famous line from this book, the Book of Disquiet, that's often quoted in talking about Pessoa in general. And that line is, as Zenith translates it, I'm the naked stage where various actors act out various plays. Right. So it's this odd thing where Bernardo Suarez, who is himself a heteronym, almost seems to be saying that he is the host for a bunch of different characters, you know, and this idea that that one person can become many people, you know, or that identity is sort of fungible among different people is something that just returns over and over and over. And so and it's even in that passage that you just read where he says, it's my hands that are wringing out the child's smock. You know, he can't see the child crying without becoming that child. And he had that kind of super empath quality, you know, that, that could make him take on so many different tones. You know, he can write these kind of dry, ironic, um, you know, very formal poems, or he has a Whitmanian, he has this heteronym named Alberto Cairo, who is who's a Whitman fan, you know, and writes a lot <laughs> like Whitman and has these long discursive poems that are a lot like Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, but they're about Lisbon, you know, and those are fantastic mm -hmm. in a whole different way. Anyway, it's a little bit like Heaton, where it's an infinite labyrinth you could go down if you start reading Pessoa. And if you know Portuguese, all the more, because, I mean, he's been really well translated by translators like Zenith, but the way he uses his native language is just, it's incredibly unique and skillful. Were there other connections that you had in mind to Keaton other than time period and this sort of little um ability to see themselves as a cipher oh yeah they have definitely something in common as figures i mean even if you look at pictures of pessoa you know he doesn't look physically like buster keaton but he has a similar um solitary quality to his figure you know and obviously he dresses kind of similarly because he's this you know first quarter of the 20th century guy but something about the images of him in his hat and his long coat walking down the streets of lisbon it has a little bit the quality of you know a figure in a silent movie or something like that. I mean, like Keaton, he was an alcoholic. He was somebody who managed it less well than Keaton, actually, and who did let it ruin his life and kill him eventually. Um, and like Keaton, I think he was someone who was just driven to create, you know, in a way that he maybe didn't fully understand. You know, I don't think that Keaton conceived himself as an artist. In fact, he didn't like to be called an artist. Uh, but it's hard to imagine somebody who was more driven to, to make things than he was his whole life. Well, with Pessoa, I felt like I keep thinking that there's people that are working in the Pessoa um, practice, but may not even know that they that that is where their inspiration is coming from. That he sort of created this um, genre all his own, wh where a thought could lead to a discursive moment, and finding that as pieces of narrative. And I think that a lot of people are actually working in this mode now. You know, he was he's completely ahead of the game. Um, in that way, because I feel like we're just catching up to that. Like it's just in vogue again to write in this sort of fragmentary, like moment by moment style. Well, and as far as incarnating yourself as many different characters and voices, what about social media? You know, imagine how he would have been having any kind of social oh. media account. And it's, it's it's occurred to me before. I mean, it would be like a life's work. You'd have to do nothing else, but it would be so great to have the equivalent of a sort of 
you know, Twitter Pessoa, you know, where you just like made up all these people and they all interacted with each other, but nobody knew that they were all fake. You know, right. I think you'd have to be really good at hiding your IP address or something to be able to do it. But I love the idea of cultivating all these different writers who speak to each other, who are somehow all really the same person. Right. It makes me think of that old um, Web 1.0 story about like that. I think it might be a Buffy the Vampire Slayer discussion board where it turns out that every single account associated with the board was held by one email address. And it was just one person <laughs> talking to themselves endlessly about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think I think that's the media, but I'm not completely certain. <laughs> that's it. That's Pessoa's <laughs> inheritor in the modern day. Yeah, it's someone obsessed with Buffy. long time ago, um, when I first came to New York in 2012, uh, I think maybe my first month in the city, I went to a live show of the Slate Culture Gab Fest, talking to Howard Shore at the Green Room. I remember that, of course, yeah, and at, at WNYC. Yes. And David Garland was part of that show. At the end of the night, I um, took a phone call um, outside after, after it was over, and it took a while. And when I got off the phone, you three Slate Culture Gab Fest folks came out and we I actually went to dinner with you guys randomly um, at City Winery and you and I shared an appetizer. And it, <laughs> it, I had just moved to New York, like really like weeks before. And here I was, now I was sitting there with the people that had just been in my ears before and I was just thinking like, this is what New York is going to be like. Oh my like. God, what a great story. I'm sorry, I don't remember that specific. I mean, I remember that night okay. and I remember going out, but that's awesome. It's so great. And look at you now. The podcast Ed has become the podcaster. As we head into recommendations, uh, it's something that I just stole wholesale from Slate Culture Gap Fest because I liked it so much. And I always thought I, I, have, I would have something to recommend this week if they, if they swung to me. I was a dog walker at the time that I was listening back then. And so as we move into the recommendation section, I will say thank you to you for inspiring this whole portion of the show. W would you like to recommend anything you like to our listeners or would you like me to start? Uh, let, well, why don't you start because I want to get a sense of what type of things you recommend. Well, I'm going to just recommend, I just, I, I just finished an audiobook that um, I was in the park in, in Prospect Park while I was finishing it. And I just had this full sort of, the universe is smaller and bigger than I ever could imagine. And like got chills down my spine after this as the final notes of, I don't know, that weird outro music that um, pod, uh, audiobook producers put on things. Um, but Sequoia Nagamatsu's How High We Go in the Dark. It's an absolutely incredible, a uh, novel about a pandemic, actually, and I personally, pandemic dystopia, I personally, when I hear about books that are related to a pandemic, I think, no, thank you. I am living in one right now, and I don't need one, um, but this book proved me wrong. First of all, the disease is very, very different, um, but and the way that it moves is each chapter, it's linked stories, so you're finding people at the beginning of this pandemic and then hundreds and hundreds of years after the pandemic has passed all the way through. Um, and you, each one focuses on one character and one story and they're all thoughtful and wonderful that if you just read one, if you just randomly 
went through and, and read one, you would get a full complete story. But I was completely blown away. And I think a part, part of it is that I went into it thinking, there's no way that I'm going to need this right now. And I ended up loving it. And partially because of the optimism that there is an end to a pandemic, we do find our way out of it eventually, um, even in fiction. So yeah, Sequoia Nagamatsu's How High We Go in the Dark, the audiobook is fantastic. Each chapter is read by a different actor. Um, and I just think that that is so fun when audiobooks can do that. Yeah, it all so depends on the readers, right? If you've got good readers, then the book comes alive. And to do the multi-voice thing is hard because they all have to be on the same page as to what kind of book it is and what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, whoever directed this book, my hat's off to you. It really came together. Um, and I'm sure it's great on the page as well. Okay, great. I'm scribbling down so many notes from this conversation. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, okay, well, I'll start with a, a book too, an audio book as well, um, which is that I've been doing a lot of, of errands lately because of my book, uh, because there are no mail rooms in, in COVID times. I can't just tell the publisher, hey, send books out to these 20 people, right, right. who want them. Uh, basically, if, if books are going out that are review copies, right, that are not being bought, that are going out to sort of critics, influencers, et cetera, it's me who is mailing them out, <laughs> and I'm wheeling them to UPS in the cold on a hand truck. And so I needed a good audiobook to listen to that had a different feeling that wasn't wintry, something that was, was spring-like. And so I'm listening to Mrs. Dalloway, which is a, a, a book set in June, right? It's a spring book. And uh, I've read it before, but many, many years ago in college and had certainly never listened to it on audiobook. And there's an audio, there's quite a few readings of it available, but the one I'm listening to is read by Juliet Stevenson, who's oh. a, an English actress who, if you've seen her in stuff, I mean, she's in one of my favorite movies, which is Truly Madly Deeply with Alan Rickman, a great, great love story, ghost story. Um, but she's also a Shakespearean actress who just has an incredible voice, very rich voice with a kind of wry irony. It's so perfect for reading Virginia Woolf. And she so obviously loves the book. You know, you can just tell that she really enjoys, you know, doing the stream of consciousness and getting into all the different characters' minds and taking you on those weird turns that Virginia Woolf takes you on, where suddenly, you know, a random stranger on a park bench, you're hearing about their interiority. She's just such a good reader. So Mrs. Dalloway, read by Juliet Stevenson, that's one. And I'm going to indulge myself in two because on our podcast, I never do two because I know Steve Metcalf, my co-host, <laughs> is going to take up all the time by doing more than two. So my second one is Merlin, which is a feature you can find online. It's part of the Cornell Ornithology Lab. They're really into birds at Cornell, apparently. And I'm not a birder, bird watcher person in the sense that I go out in search of birds, but I like to watch them come to my feeder lazily on my fire escape and then figure out what kind of birds they are. And it's really easy to do that with this Merlin page, which is at allaboutbirds.org. If you go there and look for bird ID, I swear, I don't know what magic this algorithm this thing uses, but if you enter your location, a couple of descriptors about the bird, like how big is it, what color is it, and where did you see it, within moments you're gonna find exactly which bird it is. And it's so satisfying. Um, and so I, I don't have a huge memory for this stuff. I probably only have learned about five new species so far, but it is very satisfying to go on there and identify a bird at the Cornell lab. So that's my other recommendation. That's awesome. I encounter birds that I would love an ID on all the time. Although, you know, there's, there's a crazy amount of species in Prospect Park and Central Park that you wouldn't necessarily think are around here. I, 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 I wonder how they account for that. I know. Well, Brooklyn is kind of, it's kind of a bird mecca for being a, such a big city, you know, because it has so much green space and I'm not far from Prospect Park. 
And apparently when you start reading about, you know, bird migration patterns and things like that, you would think New York City would just be sort of a flyover state for them because there's so many buildings. But Central Park and Prospect Park are huge bird watching centers, apparently, and lots and lots of species come through there when they're migrating. So please do not take me as a bird expert. I barely know how to identify seven species, but I just more and more am finding birds really relaxing to watch. It's a pandemic thing, you know, like we're inside more and it's just, it's kind of a fun game to just say, oh, I saw a downy woodpecker today and I knew it was a downy woodpecker, you know? Yeah, no, I, and it's so much better than I saw a bird today because that's like, okay. Yeah, you start to <laughs> notice them more. That's, that's the kind of amazing thing about anything that you get into, right? Including Buster Keaton is like, the more you pay attention to it, to it, the more you see, wait, it's not just a sparrow. It's a particular type of sparrow that has this pattern on its feathers. And the Cornell lab thing is great for taking you down those paths. For Buster Keaton, I feel like I my antennae are up for any sort of screening because I need to see some of Buster on the, an enormous screen now. Well, I, I send you to my pinned tweet, if I may, on my Twitter feed at the high sign because my book tour is there and there's still a few Keaton screenings to come. And people keep getting in touch with me from different cities asking me to come and screen Keaton. Uh, I'm still trying to figure that stuff out because the publisher has no travel budget to do those things, but I'm hoping that there's going to be a long tail on this book and lots of people showing those movies around the country and world. And of course, my my final recommendation is uh, your book, Cameraman. This is really, I mean, if you already feel like you know everything about Buster Keaton, this is not that type of book, but if you know nothing about him at all, it's a fantastic intro to him and the time period and if you're interested in this time period at all, um, the turn of the century and the birth of cinema, uh, this book is fantastic for it. So I really loved it. And I, and I really enjoyed uh, my introduction to the Fernando Pessoa. So thank you for that as well. <laughs> Sorry, it was the most depressing book you've ever read. <laughs> it wasn't the most depressing. He just is depressed. And it, you know, you feel it, you feel it. And you just, yeah. To the people at home, go and buy Dana Stevens' book. Go check out her Twitter, which is always good, not just about Keaton, but it's always a good Twitter. Um, and I also very much appreciate it when you go online and rate the show five stars, or if you um, write me on so many damn or at our Twitter or Instagram, all the things. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you, Dana, for coming on the show. This was a total treat. Um, and, you know, you inadvertently. Uh, inspired me to get started into this life of talking to microphones uh, with people. And so I appreciate that as well. Oh, that's so beautiful to hear. Thank you. I love doing this. The hand-delivered drink was a wonderful touch. The whole thing was just a delight. So thank you, Chris. I'm so glad. Well, that's uh, that's it. Everybody enjoy reading this next couple weeks and uh, we will be back in two weeks and we'll see what happens. I have no idea. See you soon. <laughs>